With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a test of the emergency podcast system. It is a true emergency. Quick, run. love aliens. We're in. We're in. Welcome back to Soothing Nighttime Existential Radio. (laughs) I'm your host, Maggie. And I'm the dread that fills your soul. (laughs) So, welcome back. Mm, I'm excited. To Mystery Team Inc. (laughs) The podcast. (laughs) Um, Tonight... I have a very special mystery for you. I'm so, I'm so. But before I get into it, we should definitely just cover some top of show business. First business is I want to ceremonially quack the beers. Okay. I'm drinking tea. So I'm going to quack the beer. Okay. What kind of tea are you having? Actually, don't tell me. Don't tell me. (laughs) Why? Here's a cheers to your tea. A cheer. Aw. A cheer. I'll take a sip of my tea. Perfect. Why don't you want to know okay. what kind of tea I'm having? We'll get to that. Okay. So, I'm, first, I'm concerned. let's talk about uh, the Diet Law of Pass incident, National Geographic I'm, article. I'm enraged. <laughs> okay, great. Go ahead. Here's why I'm enraged. Because... They were like, oh, it's solved, it's solved, it's a big deal. And then they just were like, it's an avalanche, which we know that it wasn't. <laughs> right. They were like, well, the slope is actually slopier than it looks. <laughs> yeah. Shut up. It's not, it wasn't an avalanche. I will say that that explanation is the only one that justifies to me the most puzzling aspect of the whole thing, which is why they would cut the tent open from the inside. And I was like, oh, that does make sense. Like, to if get they, out. Like, yeah, if they got buried in, like, a small avalanche, that would explain why they would have to cut the tent out. To cut the tent to get out. You know what else would explain why they had to cut the tent to get out? <laughs> why? What? Sorry. Aliens. For sure. I just don't understand I don't know how, but... <laughs> National Geographic wasn't like, it's definitely aliens. Yeah. I just feel like in some way, I don't know. I did like that the people who, <clears throat> like, solved it, in quotes, the way that we solve things, uh, went to the animators of Frozen. <laughs> I do like And were that. like, hey, can we use this technology to figure out how snow would impact a dead, like, a person's body? And, <laughs> and they were like, of and course, this is dead. why we invented it. And they were like, sure. <laughs> right, exactly. When we were making this children's movie musical, mm-hmm. what we really hoped... Was that one day it would be used yeah. to solve a death. Great. Several deaths. A mass death, if you will. Um, I have one more thing. 
You pointed out something that really got under my skin. Grinds your gears. (laughs) Which is that it doesn't explain how everything was radioactive. They claimed that it was from camping lanterns. No. Did you read that? So I guess like back in the day, back in the 40s where like everything, they just like lead in the paint, like, you know, like that uh, radioactive orange paint that all the tea kettles were like back in the days where you could just make something out of anything with no regard for like what chemicals were in it. I guess they made their camping lanterns with, um, I can't remember the name of the substance. It starts with a T and the wicks were like coated in this radioactive substance that uh, luminesced like much brighter and for longer than like a typical camping lantern, like a typical lantern would. So that's what was used for camping lanterns. And they say that that's why they only found radioactivity on their clothes because they were just like, it, it was the clothes that had interacted with the camping lanterns. Boo. I don't know. I have to be honest. I went into it really like not not accepting anything they said. And by the end of it, I was like, this is a valid theory. But again, it's still just a theory. I And here's my... Just like all the other theories. My main problem with it is that it's just no fun. It's no fun. I completely agree. They're like the Philip class of the Diet Love Pass incident. Like... <laughs> Stan Friedman says... <laughs> Anyway, I, yeah, I just figured out why I didn't like it, and it's because it's no fun. Totally. But is it scientifically accurate? Probably. Yeah. Is it fun? Absolutely not. Exactly. And that's not what I look for in a mystery. That's not <laughs> I don't even look what for I look scientific. for in my science. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want a scientific answer. I want fun. <laughs> that's why I have this podcast. <laughs> well... That's why we have this podcast and they have National Geographic. <laughs> You're so right. And someday when we ha- when our podcast is basically the new National Geographic, because National Geographic will be a TLC in no time, um, <laughs> then we can do whatever we want. <laughs> yeah. Then we can use frozen technology to figure things out. Yeah, exactly. Ugh. But also, like, good job, guys. Yeah, good job, I guess. Good job, I guess. Also, my favorite part of the article was when the guy was like, when I told my wife I was working on the Diet Love Pass incident, she said it was, like, she was the first time she ever respected my work. (laughs) Did you read that? So funny. Uh, That's, like, my dream relationship. I was like, well, you didn't have to tell us that, but I'm so (laughs) glad you did. (laughs) I love it. (sighs) Are you ready for a mystery? I'm so ready. (laughs) I have been looking forward to this. I can't wait. Go. Okay. (laughs) So tonight we'll be discussing the cult at the center of celestial seasonings, (gasps) a.k.a. the cult behind Sleepy Time Tea. That's literally what I'm drinking. <laughs> I know. Oh, no. I knew it I'm would be. I'm drinking cold That's tea. why I didn't want to tell you. Oh, no. <laughs> You're drinking the flavor aid, if you will. Oh, my God. Am I going to have to stop drinking Sleepy Time Tea after I... No, I specifically wrote a line in here that says, before you panic, I'm not here to cancel Sleepy Time Tea. Oh, my God. Thank God. It's the only thing that gets me through life. No. Oh my well, God. you may have a cult to thank. So, oh, no. First, I want to shout out my sources. I want to know how you a found lot of this. this. 
the, how one finds all great mysteries in 2021 tiktok oh okay great love it <laughs> um i can't wait to tell our kids like you know it's so easy to find mysteries these days like you just go to tiktok but like back in 2018 when we like started this podcast like you had to go like read the same article of like the top 10 oh most God. unsolved like unsolved mysteries of all time over and over again i think that we've done 80 um, percent of all of the like craziest unsolved mysteries that'll keep you up at night i think we have two it's just to mom shoot bella and the witch elm uh um, db cooper is on every single one persian princess i haven't seen like persian the mummy princess on any of the lists um like fun house mummies i feel like is a big category oh like haunted house cadavers you know <laughs> okay Here's my sources. Uh, a lot of this comes from an article from Megan Giller, who originally went on a Celestial Seasonings factory tour and wanted to write a puff piece about the founder, but was like stonewalled by them at every turn. And she like couldn't figure out why. And then it led her to discover and publish this story um, in an article called Cults, Conspiracies, and the Twisted History of Sleepy Time Tea. Oh my uh, God. I know. Of course, some of this comes from Wikipedia as well. Some of it comes from the International Directory of Company Histories, Volume 16, St. James Press, 1997. Um, Did you have some to go to 1 from... <laughs> No, thankfully not. Some of it comes from a book called You've Got to Read This Book, which is published in 2007 and co-authored by Jack Canfield, who's the author of the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. So I went The like, range. I went, yeah, I went everywhere for this. Um, I expected to find more uh, green text, black background about this, but I didn't. I feel like so, the tea community doesn't necessarily overlap with that corner of the internet. <laughs> but the cult community, I feel. Mm-hmm. I thought I would Although, find info about the cult that way. I feel like in my head, cult, other than the Heaven's Gate website, obviously, but in my head, like cult websites are like, have like a nice eggshell background. And like that is what I digital I crown into, yeah. molding, correct? <laughs> <laughs> digital crown molding. That's so real. I know exactly what you're talking about. Okay, I'm glad. Um, so before you panic, I'm not here to cancel sleepy time tea. I'll ex- I'll elaborate more about that later. Okay, please. First, I'm still a little on edge. <laughs> first, we're going to talk a little bit about celestial seasonings. So. Celestial Seasonings was the brainchild of a group of flower children who lived in Boulder in the 1960s. Some of the major players were 19-year-old Mo Siegel, who most of this episode is about, Wick Hay, who was a friend of his, his brother John Hay, uh, Peggy Clute, and one of their girlfriends, Lucinda Zesings. Um... So the friends basically like started gathering herbs and flowers in the mountains around Boulder and selling them to local health food stores in the 60s. And at the time, the idea of herbal tea in the U.S. was still kind of fresh because most teas came from different variants of the tea plant. Um, But and there were herbal teas in other parts of the world, but it wasn't like a big market in the U.S., so together, the group harvested 500 pounds of herbs that had been just growing wild in the fields of the like mountains of Boulder, Colorado. They put them into a blend that they called Moe's 36 Herb Tea. 
They used screen doors to sift them and paper cutters to cut them. They handmade 10,000 muslin tea bags, and they sold them to a local health food store called the Green Mountain Granary. And that was like the inception of Celestial Seasonings. Mo Siegel, founder and president, later said, We were so broke, we couldn't even afford to have ties to close the bags. So we went to Ma Bell and asked if we could have its telephone scrap wire. If you ever opened a cable of telephone wire, Siegel explained further, you see copper wire covered with multicolored plastic. So we would slice the cable like that and slit it open, and there'd be be these cute little red and pink and blue wires, and we would use those to close the top of the bags. Oh, my God. This is the summer of 1969. So summer of love, they've, like, started their own little business. In 1971... John Hay, which is Wick Hay's older brother, joined the team, bringing with him a business degree and some money, uh, which none of them had. And he helped them relocate their company from an old barn to an actual building in Boulder. And they just continued to grow from there. So the group went to the bank for a loan to start their new business. And this is a quote, wearing jeans, smelling of herbs, and armed with Tupperware containers of Moe's 36 and Sleepy Time blends. They named the company Celestial. Second one they made. It's it was like one of the first. Yeah, that's crazy. They named it Celestial Seasonings Incorporated, which is cited by multiple sources as a reference to John Hay's girlfriend Lucinda Zeising's flower name, but I could not find what her actual flower name was. (laughs) What? I know. So. Throughout the 70s, the company grew. They incorporated a labor pool and stopped picking the herbs themselves. They started selling to supermarkets instead of only health food stores, and that massively broadened their reach. Among a list of milestones published by the company that highlighted Celestial Seasoning's history were pioneer events that pointed to the relaxed corporate atmosphere pervading the company's headquarters in Boulder, the inauguration of Lunchtime Volleyball in 1974, and then Lunchtime Horseshoe in 1975, and the first non-vegetarian meal ever served at the company headquarters in 1977. Oh, my God. Did they also have, like, nap aquariums? <laughs> yes, for sure they did. <laughs> and you should probably be a consultant for businesses like these because that's the best idea I've ever heard. A nap aquarium? <laughs> yeah. So uh, m- there was a time when Celestial Seasonings made up 50% of the herbal tea market in the U.S. Um Mo Siegel remained president of the company until a merger with Kraft in 1984. But after Kraft tried to sell it to Lipton, they were challenged by antitrust laws and local management bought the company back from Kraft because Kraft didn't want it if they couldn't sell it. And Mo returned to run the company until his second retirement in 2002. Today, the company is owned by the Hain Celestial Group after a merger with the Hain Food Group. And that's why it's probably fine if you just drink celestial seasonings forever currently celestial seasonings you're gonna find out okay currently celestial seasonings annually grosses about 100 million dollars what follows is an excerpt from you've got to read this book which is a book (laughs) that i mentioned earlier which was published in 2007 co-authored by jack canfield who is the author of the chicken soup for the soul series which, by the way, is something that we should just talk about at some point. Like, it's like, what's going on there? <laughs> what is it? Do you remember, like, did you read the Chicken Soup for of the Soul course. series? Like, any of them? Yeah, okay. Of so, I, 
What's the deal? I think What's the had, deal? I think he with chicken soup for the soul. I think he like wrote those and then just like had more to give. <laughs> Good point. I mean, but he wasn't that creative. Like most of his creativity was used up coming like on coming up with the title Chicken Soup for the Soul. You're so, so right. So he was like, how do I market this? I'll just tell people <laughs> they got to read it. You're so right. Do I so, have to read it? No. Oh, okay. This is a book where a bunch of celebrities and like famous CEOs and things basically just wrote short essays about a book that changed their lives. Oh, it's a book about books. Correct. Oh. Yeah. So it's like just a bunch of celebrities and CEOs being like, this is a book that someone was like, you have to read this. And I read it and it changed my life. And it's the reason that I am who I am. And one of them. This is an excerpt. Is about. Celestial this seasonings? is an excerpt <laughs> from Mo Siegel's chapter. Oh, okay. I'm ready. It was in 1969, at age 19, that I first encountered the Urantia book. A number of friends had praised its teachings on evolution, mm. and, that, and that Christmas, a girlfriend gave it to me. I was surprised at its daunting size, 2,097 pages long. What confounded me the most was that the book contained 875 pages on the life and teachings of Jesus, including the missing years of his life from age 1 to 12, and then from age 13 to approximately 30, not chronicled in the Bible. Do we know what happened to Jesus only when he was 12? I don't think the, the, yeah, I don't think the Bible talks about like but his potty it, so training we know period. One to twelve, and then we don't we don't know one to twelve, and then we don't know what thirteen to what. Thirty. So we, but we do know. <laughs> I don't year think twelve. <laughs> I don't think truthfully, like from I don't I'm not a biblical scholar, but I don't think the Bible talks about anything besides like his birth and his like yeah him, him around the time of eight, that he was age thirty when he was like giving people fish or whatever, and then Why got did crucified. Why it like that? Why did he say one to twelve and then thirteen to thirty, as if we okay. know only one year of his adolescence? <laughs> You're so right. Um, but the the Iranian yogurt is not the issue here because the next <laughs> sentence is, "How strange and intriguing!" I thought dinosaurs and Jesus all in one text. <laughs> all so part of a hang out, If you want to go back. Yeah. If you want to go back and just talk about the age gap thing, we can, but we also could no, no, get no. into this. That no. eclipsed, that definitely <laughs> eclipsed the, the Iranian yogurt age gap. <laughs> so, yeah, so we have the Flintstones thing, and then, can you imagine the Flintstones, but it's like, a, but Jesus is like Fred's neighbor? Okay. Um. <laughs> I want that so bad. <laughs> Um, okay. They know not what they do. Okay. (laughs) Someone give me an improv award already. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I want an award. You know he's so good. I literally in my head, do you know how I got there? 
I was like, yabba dabba do. And then I was like, what's Jesus's catchphrase? And does it sound anything like yabba dabba do? And you know what is weird? It does. It stands <laughs> so perfectly. Perfectly. I just spat all over <sighs> myself. <laughs> I can't breathe. <laughs> I cried. Oh boy. And I made you cry right before minute 20, so good on me. Oh, that was unbelievable. Well done. Oh, oh my God. My tummy. Okay. My, I have bubbles in my tummy. Okay. So dinosaurs and Jesus all in one text. I didn't read it right away. Instead, I lent it to a friend. But over the course of the next few months, people kept telling me about the Urantia book. I'm going to tell you how to spell it in a second. Yeah, thank you. I was about to ask. So I, I could tell that you were like, what fucking, what word are you saying? So late one night after hearing, you really have to read this book for what seemed like the hundredth time, I knocked on my friend's door and told him, I need my book back. For the next year, I was absorbed in reading it, and I've been reading it ever since. Even today, I still host a weekly Urantia book study group at my home. It's like infinite jest. It's exactly like that. Or you're just always kind of reading it, but... Right. (laughs) (laughs) And when you're reading it, you're insufferable. (laughs) Yeah, I have been technically reading infinite jest for about 10 years. 10 years, yeah. How far into it am I? I'd say about 10 pages. Who's to say? I hate yeah, that book. Exactly. <laughs> After studying the teachings in the Urantia book, I knew that it would feel selfish and wasteful to simply focus on material success. So as a young man, when I began thinking of what I could do to make a living, I immediately turned to the health food industry. And that is how the Urantia book may have been the catalyst for Celestial Seasonings. And we'll come back to Celestial Seasonings. But now we're going to talk about what the fuck the Urantia book is. So it's spelled U-R-A-N-T-I-A. Okay. You know that it's like a cult book because anything that starts with, like, any word that, like, proper noun that starts with the word U-R-A-N, like, I already can just tell that it's... I would say any proper noun that like, starts with U. Slippery. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, like, slippery. It is slippery. Um, That's a slippery word. It is. The Urantia book, sometimes called the Urantia Papers or the Fifth Epochal Revelation, also a red flag, is a spiritual, philosophical, and religious book that originated in Chicago sometime between 1924 and 1955. Chicago is also a red flag for a religious text to originate. I agree. And 1924 to 1955. No, 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 no. All of this is just a hard pass for me. Yes. I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> what were the first four, what was it called? Epoch- Epochal revelation, revelation. Epochal? Epochal. Oh, E-P-O-C-H-A-L. Okay, what mm-hmm. were the first four epochal revelations? I'm not sure, but the book has four parts, so I'm not sure, like, if those are the revelations or, like, what is happening. Huh. Okay. But I know, but I do know a lot about it. I do <laughs> know that there are that I don't know. four Shrek films, so... <laughs> Just something to think about. Coincidence? (laughs) (laughs) Coinkydink? I think not. Okay. I dink not. Okay. Okay. Tell me more about this book. Who wrote it? Qui bono. The book and its publishers do not name a human author. (laughs) 
I already love it. <laughs> There's a sentence for you to chew on. Instead, it is written as though it is directly presented by numerous celestial beings, a.k.a. fucking aliens, appointed to the task of, quote, providing an epochal religious revelation through a conduit, a.k.a. a guy, referred to as the contact personality. That's right. Aliens wrote it. Do you want the good news or the bad news? Oh, give me the bad news first. The bad news is that because it was written by aliens, an Arizona court ruled in 1995 that it's not protected by copyright, and that's the reason why it's in the public domain. (gasps) The good news is you can download a PDF of all 2,097 pages because the Urantia book is in the public domain, and I did (laughs) do that. Oh, my God. (laughs) Turns out, if you want to copyright something, don't... Well, here's the thing. The court ruled that only a direct descendant of the conduit personality could have claimed the copyright. But because no one claimed to be the conduit personality, no one could claim the copyright. Wow, they really backed themselves into a corner on that one. (laughs) Correct. Correct. So, again, who wrote it? (laughs) Okay. The main people behind the Urantia book are William and Lena Sadler, who were two well-respected physicians in their time, who lived in Chicago. William Sadler was actually a skeptic and debunker of paranormal phenomena. He even published a book later called uh, Mischief of the Mind, or like The Mind at Mischief, um, about, quote, the fraudulent methods of mediums and how self-deception leads to psychic claims. Okay. In 1911... Allegedly, a neighbor in their building came to them, quote, concerned because she would occasionally find her husband in a deep sleep and breathing abnormally. She reported that she was unable to wake him at these times. So the Sadlers, who were physicians, began to observe these episodes. And over time, the subject began verbal communications during these episodes, claiming to be from a student visitor spiritual being or sorry student visitor spiritual beings multiple beings and they're students they are student visitor spiritual beings once again it's like driver's ed aliens wow we really nailed Just it like on, that. <laughs> on their mission they're like on their mission they're like we can't all like... fit in this one body <laughs> clark yes, get exactly. out <laughs> clark <laughs> this isn't your rotation <laughs> They're like, we are on a mission to spread the word of Jesus. He was a pretty cool guy. <laughs> yeah. We went to college together. Um, These are my buddies from college. <laughs> so this uh, situation changed sometime in early 1925 with a, quote, voluminous handwritten document, which was given to the Sadlers from the contact personality. But they won't um, say who the contact personality was. I will get into that. Okay. But it's not its the, not the same as the sleepy guy? We think that it is. The sleepy guy, the sleepy guy, for, the sleepy guy for sure is the contact personality. There's just debate about who the sleepy guy is. Oh, okay. And I'm going to tell you who the fuck he is okay. because it's not that fucking secret. <laughs> so the individual was never identified publicly. But he has been described as a hard-boiled businessman, a member of the Board of Trade and Stock Exchange. And I will get into who he is a little bit later. Okay. So Sadler wrote, this is a quote. 
I was brought into contact with it in the summer of 1911, and I have had it under my observation for more or less, uh, more or less ever since, having been present at probably 250 of the night sessions, many of which have been attended by a stenographer who made voluminous notes. A thorough study of this case has convinced me that it is not one of ordinary trance. This man is utterly unconscious, wholly oblivious to what takes place, and, unless told about it subsequently, never knows that he has been used as a sort of clearinghouse for the coming and going of alleged extraplanetary personalities. Clearinghouse. Psychoanalysis. <laughs> I know. <laughs> also, I love the term extraplanetary personalities. That's me. That's Grimes. <laughs> <laughs> Grimes is definitely an extraplanetary person. <laughs> Psychoanalysis, hypnotism, intensive comparison fail to show that the written or spoken messages of this individual have origin in his own mind. Much of the material secured through this subject is quite contrary to his habits of thought, to the way in which he has been taught, and to his entire philosophy. In fact, of much that we have secured, we have failed to find anything of its nature in existence. Stan Friedman says, just kidding, okay. (laughs) There is a skeptic who I would talk about, and his name is Martin Gardner, but we're getting to him. So... In 1923, a group of the Sadler's friends and colleagues started getting together on Sundays to discuss philosophy and religion, you know, like you did back in the day. And at the fourth meeting, William Sadler mentioned that he was like having these weird, like this, that his neighbor was having these weird episodes and he'd been observing him and everyone was like floored. They were super interested and they were like, okay, well, what does he say? And William like gave them some of the samples of the notes that they had taken. And they were, like, super interested. So they were like, well, we want to ask the extraplanetary personalities questions. And I guess he was like, okay. So the group, as like, as a group, they came up with, like, hundreds of questions. And William would ask the questions. And we don't know exactly what transpired. But William came back to the group with fully written papers, like essays, that answered their questions. What kind of questions? Just like about the nature of existence like, and what's your like guilty pleasure song? the planets. <laughs> and like, if you had to make a Sunday, what would you put on it? <laughs> Our guilty like, pleasure Like, build a taco is- and I'll tell you if you're an extraplanetary <laughs> being. Design an apartment in one of these cities and we'll tell you <laughs> your zodiac sign. And that group went on to be known as BuzzFeed. So. <laughs> they devised all these questions. He came back with fully written papers. And those papers became known as the Urantia Papers, which became the Urantia book. Oh, so the book um, came from all these questions. Yes. That the book There's out. definitely, yeah, there's definitely a Joseph Smith situation going on here. Yeah, he's like, well, I you can't see the, the <laughs> yes. guy, but I'll go yeah, away exactly. into a room that you can't and come into. And the guy into. will write the papers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... The group was called the Forum, and they became like a formal group with closed admittance. Um, There were 30 members in 1925, but over time, some people left, they let other people join, and then more people wanted to join. So ultimately, they ended up having a membership of 486 people. Wow. A smaller group of five individuals was formed called the Contact Commission, which honestly signed me up like <laughs> that's kind of cool what did they do this I included need their this details <clears throat> before i sign up well this included the saddlers themselves and they were responsible for gathering the questions from the forum and then acting as the custodians of the manuscripts um 
basically like they were like the ones who like put it all together and they like gave him the questions and then they would take all the notes and they would like type up the material and proofread it Mm. and like they were the ones that eventually published it yeah this again this is like some elron stuff they're just like building a brand like we're the we're the contact commission and like we're the forum yeah they've got catchy names it's space and like yeah and like they're doing everything right membership yes correct so this is a quote the saddlers and others involved now all deceased claimed that the papers of the book were physically materialized from 1925 until 1935 in a way that was not understood even by them, with the first two parts being completed in 1934 and the third and fourth in 1935. The last forum gathering was in 1942. What do you mean physically materialized? So even the people in the group don't know, like, what, how the papers were written. Like, they don't know if William wrote them while, like, while the guy was dictating. They don't know if the guy wrote them himself. From William, from what William said, it made it sound like the guy wrote the essays and gave them to William. Oh. And then William did, like, some editing. And there's a reason that that actually people kind of think that, and I'll get into that, too. Um, the Arantia Foundation was formed in 1950 as a tax-exempt educational society in Illinois. You can be tax-exempt if the your teachings come from an alien, but you can't get copyright. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Because you're educational. I'm just taking notes for nothing at all. <laughs> for our cult. <laughs> no. But yes. Yeah, so. Yes, yes, for our cult. <laughs> <laughs> so the identity of the contact personality has been kept a secret. The foundation claims that this was to protect him from any unwanted veneration or reverence it's for like, him. Oh, don't make me sing. Exactly. Correct. Yes. Don't make me write essays and publish them into a book. (laughs) It's like the Bible, but more fun. Um, Martin Gardner says, Martin Gardner is a skeptic, and he believes that a man named Wilfred Kellogg was the sleeping subject. And he believes that he authored the work from his subconscious mind with William Sadler subsequently editing and authoring parts. Wilfred Custer Kellogg, that's a big bad red flag. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. <laughs> when Custer is in your fucking name. Was a nephew of John Harvey Kellogg and W.K. Kellogg. And if you remember th- anything about Dr. John Kellogg, there's a great drunk history episode about him. The things he's most famous for are inventing cereal and being a vocal eugenicist. Mm, all part of a complete breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant callback. (laughs) Thank you. Also important to note here is that Wilfred Kellogg was married to Anna Kellogg, who I believe was his first cousin. And her sister. Come on, guys. (laughs) How can you be a eugenicist and also marry your first cousin? Correct. You're so right. Her sister was Lena Sadler. So the Sadlers and the Kelloggs were actually all related. Huh. In addition, William, Lena, Anna, and Wilfred had all spent their formative year formative years as Seventh Day Adventists, and the Arantia phenomenon occurred shortly after the four had drifted away from Seventh Day Adventism. Keep that in the back of your mind because they will come back. Back to the Arantia papers. A statistical analysis using the Mosteller and Wallace methods of stylometry indicates that at least nine authors were involved. Of stylometry? Mm-hmm. 
Is that just like writing? Should I be asking a question? <laughs> Should I be asking a question? It's a study of like a linguistic style. Okay. Interestingly, they compared the Arantia papers to the book that William Sadler wrote, one of them, and they concluded that it does not indicate authorship or even extensive editing by William Sadler, but does not rule out the possibility of, of limited edits. Interesting. So they, they think that, uh, at least Martin Gardner thinks that William Wilfred Kellogg wrote, wrote most of it. And that William Sadler edited parts of it. And then as more people got involved in the contact commission, that like maybe they were also authoring parts of it. And maybe that's why they were like, we don't know how it happened. <laughs> <laughs> so do you want to hear about the Urantia book? Y- yes. That's why I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> so it consists it's, of four I just parts. want to hear about year 12 of Jesus's life. <laughs> I know. So it consists of four parts. Part one is called the central and super universes. Part two is called the local universe. Part three is called the history of Urantia. And part four is called the life and teachings of Jesus. Really out of left field on that last one. (laughs) Part one describes that, quote, at the center of the cosmos is the stationary Isle of Paradise, the dwelling place of God, with paradise being surrounded by Havona, an eternal universe containing a billion perfect worlds around which seven incomplete and evolutionary super-universes circle. So again, we're back on some Mormon bullshit. A billion perfect worlds, right? Yeah, okay, I'm just trying to picture it. I'm going to paraphrase this, but part one is basically about God and how God is like the guy, but he's also a trinity, and he's omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, infinite, and eternal. And they also refer to him as a spirit personality. <laughs> the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. This is, they're ripping this off. Correct. It also talks about a bunch of different celestial beings, namely something that is an offspring of the universal Father and the eternal Son called a creator son, which is like what Jesus is. Jesus is a creator son on our Wait, planet. The offspring of the father and a son? Yeah, it's like a, it's, they say it's the joint offspring of the universal father and the eternal son. This from the people who married their first cousins? Correct. Great, got it, got it. Cool. And so it's called a creator son. And Jesus is a creator son on our planet. But are there are we, other creator suns on other planets. Perfect planets, right? No, we're in like the evolutionary outer planets. Okay, okay. So God is described as the father of each individual, and through the direct gift of a fragment of his eternal spirit, called a thought adjuster, is said to be able to guide the individual toward an increased understanding of him. The Thought Adjuster is a central teaching of the book, and it's also referred to as a mystery monitor. That, are we mystery and monitors? Indi- that's what I was going to say. Like, I thought that's what we were. It's also referred to as an indwelling presence and a divine spark. So are these like Thetans? Kind of. Basically, it's like God, like a sliver of God is, it was like implanted in each one of us when we were like born and we all have this like shard of glass in our heart that is God. Oh, so he rainbow fished us. Correct. And, or snow queen, depending (laughs) on who you ask. And (laughs) 
he, uh, I didn't write this part down, but he basically, it's like, they believe that like the first time you make a moral decision in your life, which happens around the age of 12. And now that you've pointed out the Jesus thing, I'm wondering if this is connected to that. Um, they were like, it's the one year we know. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It ignites like your thought adjuster. And from then on, it's like, you can use your thought adjuster to get closer to God. But basically it just sounds like a hyped up version of like your moral compass. Yeah. Part two is about the local universes, and it describes the origin, administration, and personalities of the local universe of Nebadon. Administration. Which is the part of the... Co- <laughs> yes. And I... Yes. And I will tell you about that, because I, I grabbed a quote to explain that. Um, and it sort of describes that, uh, like, every evolutionary world's goal is, like, basically spiritual ascension. And then it also explains that Urantia is planet Earth, because it was Earth all along. So the whole, yeah. So the whole thing feels very science fictiony and also Mormon. Sometimes, here's a fun excerpt from Paper One Fourteen titled "Seraphic Planetary Government." (laughs) I'm ready. The original sovereignty of Urantia was held in trust by the sovereign of the Satania system. It was first delegated to him. Sorry, it was first delegated by him to a joint commission of Melchizedek's and life carriers. And this group functioned on Urantia until the arrival of a regularly constituted planetary prince. Subsequent to the downfall of Prince Caligastia, at the time of the Lucifer Rebellion, Urantia had no sure and settled relationship with the local universe and its administrative divisions until the completion of Michael's bestowal in the flesh, when he was proclaimed by the Union of Days, Planetary Prince of Urantia. Who is Michael? So planetary, I don't know, but Michael is the planetary prince of our planet. Oh, so, I, I have a lot of questions. That's just, like, an excerpt about, like, the administration of, like, the intergalactic government. What's the Lucifer Rebellion? I don't know. <laughs> We're going to have to read this whole fucking book. I want it's just, to, like, I want to make, this like, episode's going to turn into, like, a trailer for this I, book. I want to make, like, a very intense sci-fi series out of this book. It's in the public domain. We absolutely can. We could. Yeah. We should. Although I will say that the Urantia Foundation tries to sue anyone who tries to like pretty reproduce it. And they usually fail because they can't because they don't own the rights to it. But yeah. I just want you to know that like we may, they may come for us. I think we should just make it into a series on like HBO. <laughs> That's fine. But we're going to have to cut this, this part out because the next part is where it gets problematic. Oh no. Because eugenics is here to ruin the party again. Eugenics. Sorry. Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> So this is, okay, so uh, I, I decided that I didn't want to give a platform to any of the actual, like, eugenics in the book, but I'm just going to read this sentence uh, from paper 49 called The Inhabited Worlds, which says, there are six basic evolutionary races, three primary, red, yellow, and blue, and three secondary, orange, green, and indigo. And I bet you can't fucking guess <laughs> why that's problematic. So... Again, I'm not going to give a platform to the eugenics, Um, but I will say there's a lot of talk of inferior races, (laughs) and in lieu of actually platforming the eugenics, I will share this absolutely batshit excerpt. During the dispensation of a planetary prince, primitive man reaches the limit of natural evolutionary development, and this biologic attainment signals the system sovereign 
to dispatch to such a world the second order of sonship, the biologic uplifters. These sons, for there are two of them, the material son and daughter, are usually known on a planet as Adam and Eve. The original material son of Satania is Adam, and those who go to the system's world as biologic uplifters always carry the name of this first and original son of their unique order. These sons are the material gift of the creator son, aka Jesus, to the inhabited worlds. Together with the planetary prince, they remain on their planet of assignment throughout the evolutionary course of such a sphere. Such an adventure on a world having a planetary prince is not much of a hazard, but on an apostate planet... Does this sound familiar to you, Seventh-day Adventism Mormons? Um, yeah. A real... They're just, this is like the battle of the, the War of the Roses and Game of Thrones all exactly. over again. <laughs> exactly. A realm without a spiritual ruler and deprived of interplanetary communication, such a mission is fraught with grave danger. Although you cannot hope to know all about the work of these sons on all the worlds of Satania and other systems... Other papers depict more fully the life and experiences of the interesting pair, Adam and Eve, who come from the core of the biological uplifters of Jerusalem to upstep the Urantia races. Quote, this is all a big quote, but while there was a miscarriage of the ideal plans for improving your native races, still Adam's mission was not in vain. Urantia has profited immeasurably from the gift of Adam and Eve, and among their fellows and in the councils on high, their work is not reckoned as a total loss. Oh, so they're like, you let the Browns have too much, but it's fine? Yeah, so this is the part where we learn that every planet gets a pair of sons called Adam and Eve, who are also a son and daughter somehow. And they're a gift from the Jesus. And Adam and Eve's job is to, quote, upstep the evolution of the people on the planet. And that's why there's like a billion perfect worlds because they've all like evolved. And our Adam and Eve failed. And the Urantia book basically claims that that's why we have like different races and why some of them are quote unquote inferior or inferior. So for anyone who's not familiar with racism, this is (laughs) racism (laughs) (laughs) and it's eugenics and it's very bad. Um, Also, I just want to really quickly point out uh, the, this is a quote, material suns vary in height from eight to 10 feet and their bodies glow with the brilliance of radiant light of a violent hue of a violet hue. So Adam and Eve are also 10 feet tall and they're blue. <laughs> <laughs> so then I wanted to like there, talk so we about were, some, we were made by like racist failure, Dr. Manhattans. Basically. Nice. Yeah. That's what they look like for sure. Although I will say that, like, the idea that there is, like, every planet gets an Adam and Eve and, like, our planet's Adam and Eve, like, somehow fucked up sounds like the premise for, like, a Pixar movie. Yes. <laughs> like, oh, no. Like, our Adam, and Eve, our Adam and Eve fucked up. And, like, how are we going to get back to our planet? And, like, whatever. Like, I was like, okay. It's All very right. Terry Pratchett. It, you know what? It is very Terry Pratchett. Um, like in in the hands of someone who's not a eugenicist, it could actually be like a kind of a funny premise, yeah. as long as their job wasn't to like fix the races. You know what I mean? Yeah, it would have to be like it was foretold that Eve would eat the apple, and then like our Earth got like an Eve with like an attitude problem, and she like doesn't <laughs> want the apple. 
Voiced by Sarah Silverman, oh. yeah. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I love that. Um, yeah, well, we should workshop that. Okay, so <clears throat> this was, like, where I wanted to take some time to talk about racist and, like, eugenics dog whistles. But instead, I accidentally learned that the guy who invented the silent dog whistle was a eugenicist. <laughs> So, like, what the fuck is that? They're everywhere, We're dude. Not safe. So, I know. So, I would love to do a mini episode about the racist history of the dog whistle in the United States. Um, but we'll have to come back to that. And if you want to read about it, I think I'm going to link the Washington Post article in the show notes that talks about, like, why inventing the dog, the silent dog whistle was by an eugenicist, why a eugenicist invented the silent dog whistle. I would love to know. Um, <clears throat> I also originally included here just a list of, uh, like, racist things that former presidents have said. Obviously, it was one president heavy. Um, <laughs> and, but I was like, we, I, I was like, I don't even want to talk about him anymore. So I'm, yeah, I've cut it, but we that. can, yeah. But, you know, if anyone wants to hear them, I can just send you a list. Um, <clears throat> okay. So back to the Urantia book. Part four is the longest part. <laughs> It's 775 pages. Wait, hold on. So the first three parts are all like 100. Wait, oh, it's 2,000 pages. Sorry. Yeah. Ignore me. Continue. So it's 775 pages, and it's exclusively a narrative about the life of Jesus. I just, we don't need that many pages. It's not that many years. The weird part, yeah, it's just year 12, right? (laughs) Um, The weird part is that everyone... Everyone who likes this book, I should say, agrees that it's, like, really well-written. Like, they say that it reads, like, the best. It's, like, an amazing, like, fantasy novel, like, level prose. Mo Siegel says, When I read the section in the Urantia book about Jesus, I was profoundly moved. Jesus, both the human being and the son of God, came alive in the most superbly written biographical literature that I have ever come across. In addition to reframing Jesus for me, it made me far more respectful and appreciative of my childhood training in both Judaism and Christianity. Simply put, part four transformed my life from one of doubt to one of faith, from one of insecurity to one of trust in God, with Jesus as the lens through which God becomes visible. As a spiritual adventurer, I was thrilled that the Jesus of the Urantia book built on the Bible and then took me a hundred miles farther. Also, even the skeptics say, like, <clears throat> whoever wrote part four, like, did not write the other parts because it's just, like, so well written. <laughs> Should we read it? No. <laughs> I don't care. But but do we but we do want to know, don't we? I mean, I want to know if it's actually that good. No, I think we want to know about the, about year, uh, year 12. One to 11. And, then and 13, 13 to 30. So now we're going to talk about the science. Obviously, the 1920s slash 1930s science in the Arantia book is consistent with what the understanding of science was at the time. For example, the described formation of the solar system is consistent with the Chamberlain Moulton planetesimal hypothesis, which was the accepted hypothesis at the time. But in the 40s, science was like, that's wrong. And now our understanding of the solar system is based on the nebular hypothesis. based on the nebular hypothesis. Like, it's totally different. According to the book's descriptions, the universe is hundreds of billions of years old and periodically expands and contracts, they say it it respires, at 2 billion year intervals. Recent observations measure the true age of the universe to be 13.8 billion years, and the book does not support the Big Bang Theory. 
The book also the book repeats support the Big Bang theory, but it thinks that the no. universe expands and contracts. It thinks that it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, live your life, I guess. <clears throat> the book also repeats the mistaken idea that planets close to a sun will gradually spin slower until one hemisphere is left always turned to the sun due to tidal locking, which we know is like so not true that it's actually physically impossible. Of course, the extraterrestrial authors included their own little clause that says, we full well know that while the historic facts and religious truths of this series of revelatory presentations will stand on the records of the ages to come, within a few short years, many of our statements regarding the physical sciences will stand in need of revision in consequence of additional scientific developments and new discoveries. These new developments we even now foresee, but we are forbidden to include such humanly undiscovered facts in these revelatory records. Let it be made clear that revelations are not necessarily inspired. The cosmology of these revelations is not inspired. What do you mean not inspired? Like, the cosmology in the book is not, like, from divine consciousness. It's like, we dumbed it down for your understanding because you haven't discovered the real science yet oh okay which is you know it's coincidental one could say (laughs) one could even say it's too easy but (laughs) it's fortunate (laughs) um then there's the plagiarism In 1982, a reader of the Urantia book named Matthew Block self-published a paper that showed that the Urantia book utilized material from 15 other books. All of the source authors identified in that paper were published in English between 1905 and 1943 by U.S. publishers. They are typically scholarly or academic works that contain concepts and wording similar to what is found in the Urantia book. The author of that paper has since claimed to have found over 125 additional source texts that were incorporated into the papers. And they also, like, give you a side-by-side where they're like, this is clearly, like, directly lifted from this other book. No way. But, to be fair, maybe the aliens didn't know that plagiarism is illegal. (laughs) They were like, or maybe we're sharing. Maybe they just didn't know MLA format. Yeah. So, we don't know. So... Dr. Meredith Justin Sprunger, who is a liberal believer in the Urantia book and a former minister of the United Church of Christ, was asked by Martin Gardner, the skeptic, what he thought about the plagiarisms. And he responded that if humans wrote the book, the plagiarisms would indeed be disturbing. But not if it was written by super mortals. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> Did he explain so I found that an interview. he just was like, super mortals can't? No. Okay. He was just like, well, yeah, that would certainly be concerning if humans had written it. (laughs) If I did it. (laughs) Oh, my God. I would have used a different glove if I did it. If I did Um, it. I found an interview, which you can watch, and I will link it in the show notes, where Mo Siegel interviews Dr. Meredith Sprunger. Um. And I think that the link I have is from truthbook.com, which is Ah, a Urantia website. Truthbook. And they included a transcript, and it is, like, digital crown molding. So if anyone wants to read or watch that video, I will link it. Organizations. So there are a few main Urantia organizations. 
One of them is called the International Urantia Association, and they had 26 reader associations worldwide as of 2002, but I couldn't find an updated number. That's just what Wikipedia says. There's also another group called the Urantia Fellowship, which was formerly the Urantia Brotherhood, which was founded in 1955 with the Urantia Foundation as the original social fraternal organization of believers who claims to have roughly 1,200 official members. And then there's the big one, which is called the Urantia Foundation. They're the ones that sue everybody all the time. And the Urantia Foundation is responsible for something called the Urantia Book Internet School. No. (laughs) And I actually discovered the Urantia Book Internet School before I learned about the Urantia Foundation because I was trying to learn about the Urantia Book the best way I know how, which is Internet School. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So... I was surprised to find that there were not, like, I thought there were going to be, like, hundreds of videos made by, like, a guy in a split level who, like, just loves the Arantia book and, like, calls, says he has a vlog and is just, like, you know, like, has a bunch of guns and just, like, is making YouTube videos about it. I, I found nothing of the sort. So I was like, how is the Arantia book everywhere and nowhere? But what I did find was this perplexing video, which I will play for you now. It's called What I Love About the Urantia Book. And I thought that it would tell me something, but it did not. So I'm going to play some of it for you now. I'm very excited. Urantia Book says... It's really simple. Spiritual experience. The depth. Such clear understanding. This whole adventure. There's a lot that we can start living now. Food for your soul. Personal religion. Faith in humanity. Transforming experience. And this Urantia Book. That's relatable. True. God exists. Clear. Something quite new. Haha. <laughs> My bread and butter. What's this all about? What are we a part of? Why are we here anyway? Threw it all up in the air. It's all the missing pieces. This all makes sense now. Evolution. Reality. Physics and astronomy. The origin of the universe. The love of God for us. Deepened my faith. I think the biggest thing, I'm still looking at the camera, yeah? It's so intense. Nothing like it. Big book. There's a lot to read there. You just have to plow through it. Why we matter. Love. A revelation. More clarity. More tangible. Direction. Life change. Bring God and man closer together. Where are we in the universe? Adam and Eve. The history part. How religion came about. Purposefulness. This is not an accident. And there's truth, beauty, and goodness mixed in. We are a huge family. Everybody's my brother and sister. Clarity for why we're here. Where we are going. Okay, it's just two minutes of that. Like, I thought that was like the intro, but it's just a two minute long video of that. Where like they don't. Christian mommy bloggers email word cloud. Yeah, they don't communicate anything about the book. They just go like, Adam and Eve, it's a big book. Lot to read there. God. I like the guy who was like, you have to plow through. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me too. Also, Mo Siegel is in this video. He was one of those voices. Oh my God. And it's just two minutes of that. And they just continue to go like, it's a book. It's a book. I love a book. What are we doing here again? Um, that is bananas. Baffling. Taught me nothing. It's called What I Love About the Arantia Book. They also didn't even almost say, six... like, I love it. They just, like, said things no. about it. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you have to plow through it. I just really felt like it was, like, I really thought that was the intro. <laughs> it sounds like an intro. And then I thought they were going to tell me about it, but they didn't. And then I found a video called Urantia Book Internet School. Yeah. And would you believe that that didn't answer any of my fucking questions either? No. But it did. 
But it did oddly pitch that through the Arantia Book Internet School, students can enrich their learning of the Arantia Book in a, quote, non-interpreting, non-invasive, and non-aggressive environment. Which felt like you kind of said the quiet part out loud, right? <laughs> like, Wait, what is non-interpreting? What is a non-interpreting environment? I don't know. And why do they have to point out that it's not aggressive? <laughs> Were there if like a lot of like... say it's not aggressive. Yeah, right? <laughs> it's non-invasive and it's non-aggressive. I'm like, this is your pitch? It's like when someone says like, yeah, I'll definitely be there. I'm like, well, I wasn't questioning whether you were going to be there or not until you said it like that. Yeah, and now I don't think you're going to show up. Right. So now I think it is an interpreting invasive, aggressive environment. <laughs> you know what? I really just am trying to like avoid interpreting environments. <laughs> what is that? I think it's like they're not going to tell you what the book means. Like they leave oh. it open to your, for you to interpret. Oh, okay. Um, so a scam. Yeah, and I interpret it as racism. So I don't know what they could possibly say to me that's worse than that. <laughs> but so then when I eventually found the Arantia Foundation website, I learned what the Arantia Book Internet School is. So it's a two-week program. Week one, this is their description. This is from the Arantia Foundation website. During the first week, students are assigned a reading to study carefully before responding to some thought-provoking questions. The questions are designed to provoke a deep reflection leading to the personal, personal discovery of revealed truth. Having a full week to read and contemplate the selected papers gives students enough time for an in-depth consideration and maturation. The resulting examination of facts and their integration into a conceptual framework is a complex process which contributes to the acquisition of a truth-based personal culture, to the spiritualization of the material mind, and to the formation of righteousness. This is true intellectual training as practiced in the universal schools on the ma- of the mansion worlds. One might say the it is a what? preparation... This is a true intellectual training as practiced in the universal schools of the mansion world. Oh, no. One you can't might say. Just say it again. <laughs> Sorry, one might say. One, one might say it is a preparation for the next life. Which is like, ew. Like, if you are a studier of cults, you know that. Oh, yeah. You don't want to be doing things that prepare you for the next life. What is mansion? I think the mansion worlds are, I think they're the billion perfect planets. Okay. That have already evolved. And, like, this is the kind of intellectual training that they claim to and do. And they're basically on, like, the... just, like, hop on hail bop Like, it's the same vibe. Yes. That's what I'm saying. They're, like, we just have to, like, get ourselves to the point that we're as evolved as, like, the billion perfect worlds. And then, you know what I mean? Like, okay. Yeah. That, it's preparing for the next life is a huge red flag. That's, like, a huge, that's, like, a doomsday red flag. Week two. The set, that was just week one. Oh, my God. Week two, the second week accommodates an increased desire in the human mind to share these new intellectual acquisitions with other believers. Like love, truth requires to be shared. Responses to the questions are discussed under the benevolent animation of the teacher facilitator. This sharing of personal discoveries with truth seekers from different backgrounds and cultures becomes a unique opportunity to establish new relationships based on the desire to know, then understand, and finally, love one another. Relationships that build the spiritual brotherhood of believers, the kingdom of heaven. Again, you guys, like, 
this is a cult. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my God. <clears throat> so that's the Urantia Internet Book School, and I think you and I should sign up. But I completely agree. <laughs> At this point, I was thinking, like, okay, this is definitely a cult, but we also know that there are, like, thousands of cults operating everywhere at any given time and like it's i don't know it just seems like a bunch of god nerds like i whatever they just like to read about sci-fi jesus and like i can't fault them for that and whatever (laughs) they're willing to overlook the eugenics part and i don't know like make new friends okay fine but then i went to the urantia foundation website section called contact readers where it allows you to find a study group in your area and it has an interactive google maps map no and it turns out there are like Hundreds of them everywhere. There are seven in Los Angeles what, that meet what every areas. Week. What areas of LA? Marina Del Rey, of course. Um, Mission Hills. Uh, there was one like north that I can't remember. I can I can find you the full list if you want. Please, but I would like to see them. Yeah, I think I do want to go to the Marina Del Rey chapter. <laughs> <laughs> It's probably the night. It's probably it's the nicest probably one. Yeah. The nicest one. So it turns out that there are these like quote unquote study groups everywhere and they meet every week and it's freaky. And then I learned that the current president of the Urantia Foundation is none other than Mo Celestial Seasoning Siegel. No. Yep. No. He's the current president. Of the Urantia Foundation. Oh, my God. And, as you know, no longer works at Celestial Seasonings. Well, no. Who has the time to do both, you know? <laughs> I don't have time for tea and cults. Um, <laughs> That's well, he, crazy. He had, time, he had time to do both. It's the running the tea company and running the cult, I think, is the problem. Yeah, that's what I mean. Who has time to run a tea company and a cult? Yeah, you're right. This is an excerpt from Megan Giller's article. The fellowship is putting its money where its mouth is, too. In a 2010 email sent to readers with advanced information and forward-looking perspectives that are not suited for being posted on this website, quote-unquote, a follower named Martin Greenhut writes that the trustees have convened a panel on eugenics. He names all of the panel members, the most striking of which is Kermit Anderson, who at the time was the genetic screening program director at Kaiser Permanente in California and the author of a lot of genetics research. Oh, my god little information on the panel's current activities could be found and repeated attempts to reach both mo siegel and the arantia foundation were met with resounding silence wow so it's not just like oh they're like overlooking the eugenics part it's like that's i guess actively a part of what's going on at the higher levels of the arantia foundation that's really so (laughs) i'm going to leave you with a few quotes from mo oh no in an interview, Caroline McDougall, who was the company's fifth employee, said, Mo and John used it as a guiding principle and continually quoted from the Urantia book. It was a guide for making sure of the moral values that underlay the company at the time. Here is a more recent quote from Mo. Um, this comes from the Urantia Book Fellowship website in something called The 20 Most Asked Questions. Illness and disease result from evil and cause suffering, Siegel writes. Unfortunately, several factors hinder progress toward the development of a disease-free world. The laws of genetics are immutable and form the physical cornerstone of evolution. At the present time, mankind loses about as much progress as it makes by ignoring eugenics. 
Yikes. Yikes. That's like, I mean, he literally just said, like, we lose as much progress as we make by ignoring it. Okay. And then these are quotes from You've Got to Read This Book. When I first heard people discussing the Urantia book, they said it was a revelation written not by human beings, but by angels, which I thought was the goofiest thing I'd ever heard. I ended up reading it in spite of all that. After I read it, I was not concerned about who had written it or how, uh, how it had been written because it was so powerful. I'd wanted bold. I'd found bold. I'd wanted spiritual adventure, and I was on the ride of my life. I'd wanted truth, and the book was loaded with it. Since that time, I have looked into it deeply, and I cannot find any author associated with the book. But that is not the point, because I love what it says, and I'm a much better person because of its teachings. I've learned not to pick fights with the books I read. I'm appreciative, and I grow from them. And one last quote. In fact, those ideas were the inspiration for the uplifting quotes we print on the side of our tea boxes <gasps> and on our tea bag tags. No! The end. No! 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 I'm so sorry. No! The tea bag tags have your Angie book quotes on them. <laughs> My tea has so eugenics sorry. in it. <laughs> I'm so sorry about your eugenics tea. No, not my eugenics tea. <laughs> what is the quote on the side of your bag? Well, the ones that I get don't have like strings. Oh, um, I have to look at yeah. the box. Okay. It you probably may want says to ch- like, check the box later and check it back probably in. says like take a sip to the master race. <laughs> you're so right. <laughs> it probably says like you've got good genes if you're drinking celestial seasonings. <laughs> yikes, guys. Big Tea yikes. for only the purest of genes. Yeah, exactly. God, this is upsetting. So, just a reminder, listener discretion is advised. (laughs) This is not an endorsement of cults or celestial seasonings. We are not medical doctors. This this is not to be construed as medical advice. It's meant for (laughs) entertainment purposes only. That being said, these guys are fucking eugenicists. So, like, I don't know what to tell you. But they don't have a stake in the company anymore. So, I don't know. Jury's out on whether or not it's, like, if it's, like... You're okay to drink celestial seasonings. Like jury's out. I go like sleepy time tea dupe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know what to tell you. I mean, huge bummer. That's a huge bummer. <sighs> yeah, man, you really harsh so, my mellow. That's the cult behind sleepy time tea, dude. I'm so upset. I'm so sorry. I'm so upset that eugenics made my tea. <laughs> I know. Oh my god. But you did a fair. This was great, but I'm furious. Thank you. <laughs> Are there any questions? Um yeah, comments, question. concerns? How mm-hmm. could you do this yeah. to me? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I thought you this should know. This is like if I came to you and I was like, I have a mystery about how the <laughs> makers of micheladas are actually <laughs> running tests on lab animals. No. But but wouldn't you rather know? 
<laughs> well, now I, <laughs> I have I was to say never yes. given the choice. <laughs> I feel like it's better that you know. I'm sorry. I know, but now every time I go to sleep, I'm going to be riddled with guilt. Kayla, TikTok was laughing at us. TikTok was <laughs> laughing at you. It's TikTok new this whole time. And we didn't know. How dare they? That article is from like 2015. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I'm upset. To be fair, there was a lot going on between 2015 and now. But now yeah, in the, our the fog has lifted. The fog has lifted. We can take off the veil and see celestial seasonings for what it really is. <laughs> This is the nice thing about when the fascist goes away temporarily, which is that, like, now I can focus on, like, the real issues, like the tea companies that were founded on cults, because I didn't have time for this before. I didn't have time to nitpick celestial seasonings. I was too busy arguing about why Sean Spicer shouldn't be on Dancing with the Stars, you know? (laughs) One of the greatest scandals of the administration. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, for sure. When we look back on... This administration, I really think the history books will focus on Sean Spicer on Dancing with the Stars. <laughs> Specifically the Toy Story performance. God, you're so right. Very upsetting. <laughs> Very upsetting. Very upsetting. That one is almost as upsetting as knowing that my favorite tea is made by eugenicists. Was made. Was. By I, yeah, you're right. Who knows what the Haines Celestial Group is doing? Oh, but some people also have said that maybe Celestial Seasonings, like they said it was Lucinda's flower name, but some people wonder if maybe it came from the Urantia book. That's what I was thinking. Because they're Celestial authors. That's what I was thinking, because it's like too coincidental that they're called Celestial authors. But it's still unsolved, because we still don't know what happened to Jesus that one year. (laughs) No, that's the only year we know what happened to him. Oh, we don't know what happened to Jesus all those other years. <laughs> the true mystery we don't know. is Jesus' youth know. and adolescence minus age 12. Correct. Uh, this was a good one. Thank you. Even though you ruined I everything good about for it. me. But I'm so I really sorry. It. I'm glad you enjoyed it, even though it ruined everything for you. Yeah, if I was going to have my life just, like, ripped out from under me, this is the way I would want it. <laughs> <laughs> I thought so. Um, thank you for listening. Thank you for witnessing my. I'm fall sorry from if I Greece. ruined sleepy time tea for you. <laughs> Kayla's fall from grace. I'm so sorry. Um, yeah, thank you for listening. We're trying to uh, like become more of an internet presence. So if you don't follow us on Instagram, we would really appreciate it if you just went and followed us. Um, and of course, ratings and reviews on iTunes are really, really helpful. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, like subscribing or whatever. Um, and of course, send us an email. We just love to get letters. (laughs) (laughs) Um, especially when they're from like great best friend girls or like, just like cool people. Um, yeah. Do you have any end of show business? No, I'm just trying to pick up the pieces of my shattered existence. <laughs> you know, this really wasn't fair because I didn't, like, offer you any alternatives. No, I need you to find me something that works as well as Sleepy Time Tea. 
Well, I can tell you don't get yogi tea because that tea has um, the kundalini guy on the box. And he's also like allegedly an assaulter so god there's is nothing tea is okay like, like is can i knew? have nothing? nothing sacred like tea apparently is the thing like you got to be careful with tea oh my god there's a huge market right now for herbal teas from like normal people so if anyone <laughs> if anyone wants to fill that niche of i just want an herbal tea from somebody that doesn't make me regret supporting them <laughs> Caffeine and regret-free tea. You could start it. What if we did Mystery Tea Inc.? (laughs) And we started a, like, tea business that was, like, not offensive to anyone. guaranteed not from a eugenicist. Yes. Guaranteed. That's our guarantee. Oh, my God. I bet you somebody already took that. I'll start an email for it. Okay, you go start us an email. You can email us at. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, all right. Okay. We love you guys. Stay safe. We, love you. we don't know. Stay in your lane. Fuckle the buck up for real. Tea smooches. Oh, sleepy mm. time smooches. Oh. <laughs> okay. Goodbye. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, are you a super fan of Taylor Swift, Jelly Roll, or Morgan Wallen? Are you that song nerd who likes to dive into every little lyric of every little song and figure out what everything means? Do you want to take that a bit further, though? Because I have a podcast called Songwriter Soup, and it dives into the journey of a songwriter and how those people help craft the soundtrack of your life. I'm Laura Veltz. And I'm bringing all of my friends together to discuss our funny little job writing for all of your favorite artists. Listen to Songwriter Soup wherever you get your podcasts.